Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Event Industry News Podcast with me, James Dixon, wishing you a very good morning, afternoon or evening, whenever or wherever you join today's podcast from. And on the show today, um, a really in, I'm certain it's going to be a really interesting episode. We're going to be talking about a newly published book that is very relevant to what many, many people, regardless of whether you work in the events industry or not, have gone through in the last two years. The book is called The Power of Leading with Empathy, Overcoming the Challenges of Leading in a Non-Nine-to-Five World. Its author, John McMahon, joins us today, and John is also the CEO at MCM. John, welcome to the Event Industry News Podcast. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on. You're very, very welcome. Um, and as I said, this is a book that is relevant not just to the events industry, but to everybody who, who works in any form of industry uh, and and an experience that lots of people have had over the last two years or so. I'll repeat the title again, The Power of Leading with Empathy, Overcoming the Challenges of Leading in a Non-9-to-5 World. Tell us a little bit, first of all, John, what inspired you, first of all, to put pen to paper and put this book together? Yeah, I mean, like anybody, when it's been nearly two years now since we've all had, you know, very different working conditions, uh, it seems doesn't seem that long. In other ways, I think to all of us, it seems a lot longer. Yeah. Um, but this has now become, we've become used to speaking like this. We've become yep. used to working in all different places and seeing each other's backgrounds, etc. And it was sort of towards the end of that first year of lockdowns and pandemic that I'd spoken to an awful lot of agency owners. We'd had to shift very quickly into not working in an office, but working from home most of the time. And everyone was doing the same thing. And it was showing there was an awful lot of pros and cons around the whole situation that were actually, lots of them were never gonna go away again. Mm. Um, so partly for my own, uh, I've always wanted to write a book. I underestimated just how hard it would be, uh, <laughs> even though you should have had more time during that <laughs> pandemic year. Um, but I actually went away and I interviewed lots of other leaders, agency owners, people generally who'd been working, maybe not fully remotely, but running businesses that didn't rely on offices mm. um, and trying to find out you know, how they'd overcome some of the challenges of keeping a team really inspired and really working at the top of their game. And if if my research is is correct, you've been you founded MCM in nineteen ninety seven. Is that right? That's right. It has been um, nearly twenty five years that um, we've been running as an agency. So we've seen an awful lot of change in that time. Mm. Um, but I must admit, most of the time we have been more office based than not. Mm. But of course, as well, that the, the reason I, I mentioned that is that this gives you a long period of time in. A, a suitable position you, you, it, to be qualified to talk about this subject. This is very much written from your own experience, was was my impression of, of reading some of the pages in the book. Yeah, very much. Uh, there's two sides. One, the whole basis of empathy um, is around how it's a new type of leader now or a different type of leadership skill. Um, and this isn't just for people who are CEOs or MDs. It's for people who might be running a small team, say, within the events industry, mm. uh, within somebody you know who has maybe a team of just 10 people. This does apply to everyone that we need to lead in a different way. Um, I've often been accused in the past of being quite a soft leader. Uh, and I always thought that was a problem, but we've always had really engaged teams. We've had happy customers, um, but we've always been, we were one of the first agencies that had AstroTurf grass on the floor in a games room uh, back when it was only Google and uh, maybe Innocent Smoothies who were doing it at the <laughs> time. Um, and that was seen on as, you know, how come you're being you know so nice to your staff? Why, you know, they should be at their desk the whole time, et cetera. 
And what I've always seen is you treat your team really well and you listen to them and communicate well and you get a fantastic performing team back. Um, and that seems to be working very well for people, whether they're in offices or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is applying a lot of a lot of my learnings over the years, a lot of what I've done, hopefully right. Uh, obviously, like anybody, I've done lots wrong and then learned from the mistakes as you go along. So it's a combination, yes, of my experience, but also a lot of people who have added into the book, you know, things that they've done that they really do recommend. And of course, this is this is very much a, perhaps a comment on societal change, not just driven by the pandemic, but driven by you know simple evolution, how we have moved on as a society in the last 10, 20, 30 years. You know, if you cast a, cast your mind back, I suppose, even back to the 80s, which doesn't seem, you know, a, a huge amount of time ago, you know, leadership was very much about being the boss and being the, you know, the, the, the tough person you were, you're banging your fist and, you know, driving your team forward. You know, if you think about sort of old fashioned, you know, industrial leaders and bosses and people like that um it was a totally different management and leadership style here and of course i suppose the danger with that style of leadership and when you would maybe discuss with that older generation of of leading with empathy is that they didn't want to be seen as being weak they needed to be seen as being very strong and dynamic and you know if i show any sort of empathy i don't want to let the team get away with murder and of course society has changed massively and we really do have to to rethink how we practice leadership management call it what you will but being in a position where you are responsible for people that's right and it is people skills as well when you're in an office all day it's much easier to be seen and be quite a strong and powerful leader Um, that doesn't mean you have to instill fear in people there are some fantastic leaders who are great in person Mm. but when you're not in front of people the whole time um, you need to understand people you need to understand their background um, and you need to also connect much more and think about you know if people aren't working nine to five because they find they work better at seven to four or something like that, does that really mean that they're a bad person because they're not working to the exact same hours as you? Um, and that, that's a lot of reason for the book, in fact, is that there are still there are still people who want to insist that people come back into offices again because that's always been the way it's been. Mm-hmm. But I think we've all realised over the past couple of years there is another way. There is a different life. We can combine the two. Yeah. And of course, if we all stuck to the way things had been, you know, we'd all still be riding horses, you know, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and and Henry Ford wouldn't have had his day in the limelight. Um, That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, if I may, John, go through um, a few um passages and bits of text that I've looked at in the book and and thought they might make some some interesting discussion points um beginning right in the early stages um and, and I'm going to reference page numbers here so anybody who may tune into this podcast who then wants to go and get a copy of the book can maybe reference some of the stuff that we're talking about today John um and in chapter 1 page 16 there's a there's, there's a great paragraph about the new dilemma that working from home posed to bosses um the genie is out of the bottle we can't put it back And do we really want to? Instead of people having to justify why they want to occasionally work from home, some now want their employers to justify why they need to be in the office. And I thought that was a great early way of looking at it. You know, there was very much this feeling. I I can remember people in a job probably 15 years ago uh, who wanted to work from home and who went to the bosses and it was met with real trepidation. You know, there was a real sort of mistrust there are they going to do what they want to do and you know now that it has been proved there is that dilemma isn't there there is you know people are used to a different way of working and the thing is that when we were all forced into this 
And there is a little bit of an argument that everyone had to do the same thing. Therefore, we were all working on the same terms. Mm-hmm. But nothing went terribly wrong. A lot of businesses and most businesses yeah. you speak to actually were more productive. Their staff were happier apart from obviously the, the horrible events that were going on outside. And yes, you know, something like the events industry, obviously, you know, um, it was it was not a good time at all uh, with no face to face events, etc. But as far as actual productive workers working from home was concerned, a lot of people, as I say, they were more productive. Um, and I think, you know, going forward, it's the trust issue you mentioned there. It always used to be if I can't see somebody working at their desk, maybe they're not. Maybe they're doing something. And I think the great thing for businesses is that actually makes you think differently and think, well, actually, if I don't trust my team, are they the right people? Do mm. I actually want them on the team? Mm. Um, so now you do have people that generally you are trusting because you've seen the work from home. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's that's further sort of picked up um, in the next bit that I highlighted, which is in, in chapter two, page 27. The problem is, is that for years there has been a stigma attached to working from home. Many companies have been scared of moving away from the tried and tested office dominated culture. That's right. <clears throat> and, and even the same with myself, in fact, you know, I know I'm one of those people that actually I work very well from home. Um, I, I, I shut myself away, no distractions at all, and I'll get a certain type of work done much better from home. Mm. And then obviously there's a different type of work face-to-face where, you know, it is great. We were out for a team event the other day, in fact, planning, coming up with ideas, etc. It's great to be face-to-face. But I often went to the office just because I didn't want to be seen not going to the office. And that was my business. It's my team and I'm in charge, but I still had that stigma about myself that if mm. I'm not there, that then they must think I'm not working very hard. <laughs> and it has been there for a long time. Um, but I think more and more studies have been done that you're right, you know, we would all be riding horses if we hadn't actually found a way out of this. The amazing thing about working in open plan offices is we were all building these great open plan offices and thinking it was brilliant without actually thinking that an awful lot of people, certainly in our office, they'd come in, they'd have a chance in the morning. But then they'd stick their headphones on at their desk so they could get on with their work. And the headphones wouldn't come off again until lunchtime. Yes. There wasn't actually the communication we all think might have happened because they actually weren't very productive workspaces. Yeah, uh, uh, Do you know, this is something that I've genuinely I've I've thought about many times in the last two years. Maybe not the last full two years, because really it was it was as we were sort of coming out of that initial lockdown period and people starting to maybe get back to thinking about doing some work. I did think to myself, there's an awful lot of people who commute, get up in the morning and commute into work, get there, say good morning, make a cup of coffee, turn on their computer, will sit there diligently at their computer doing their work. And we're not just talking about the events industry here. We're talking about it, it could be financial. It could be law. It could be, you know, they will sit at their computer. They'll work for a few hours. They'll go out and have their lunch. They'll come back in. They'll work for a few hours. Then they'll get back on a train, a bus, a tube or in their car and commute an hour home. And really, I suppose the question that I was asking is, what difference would it make if that person was just doing that same work on a computer in in, in their home? That's you know, right. They're saving themselves the two-hour journey, the expense, the hassle that goes with that, to do exactly the same job. And, and you know, I, I suppose the best thing that could have happened in some respects is that we were forced very quickly to have to make these decisions. The decision was almost taken out of the hands of, of leaders, wasn't it? Because they didn't have a choice. They had to close their offices. So it was, well, sink or swim. Let's see what happens. That's right. The interesting thing is that happened virtually overnight as well. And it's something that in the past we all would have planned as businesses. 
maybe six months, a year ahead. And yeah. then we gradually would have phased the working from home, et cetera, but it had to happen. And as I said, nothing went wrong. People were there. And you're right, you know, the studies, uh, even in our own office, there's there's um, there's a chapter in the book that talks about just how much time people are saving by yeah. not travelling to work. So if you multiply a team, our team's 20 strong, you multiply that by some people were travelling probably up to three hours if you included traffic there and back each day. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got the cost, you've got the environmental issues, etc. just to go and sit in the same room as other people and put your headphones on and then chat at lunchtime. So the, the challenge will be is, is getting the mixture right between between the two sides, though, because we all, you know, we're, we're social animals. We need to interact and we course. need to be kept alert, etc. Of course we do. Yeah. And, and, and something that I wrote down as I was reading through some of these pages, I scribbled something down um, and, and I've got it here on my notepad in front of me. The three bedrocks of health. Which are, you know, I, I've, I've dug around a bit and and. The three bedrocks of health, uh, uh, most experts appear to concur that sleep, diet and exercise. OK, a lot of people don't get enough sleep. A lot of people don't have the best diet in the world. And a lot of people don't do enough exercise. And what is the common denominator reason as to why they don't do those three things better than they should be doing? Because they don't have enough time. Now, all of a sudden, when we've taken that daily commute of maybe an hour there and an hour back in the evening and people are not having to get up as early in the morning or maybe they do maybe they're then doing their exercise I, I don't think it's any surprise that we're seeing a more productive workforce working from home when that extra time that they're perhaps being afforded is allowing them to look at those three things more sleep better diet more exercise lo and behold we have people who are healthier healthier people more productive during their working hours yeah, you're quite right. And that's part of what I studied for the book as well, because I've always been fascinated by the brain, how the brain works, how we can be more productive, how we can, you know, have life goals, etc. Um, and I worked with a guy, um, Dr. John Finn, uh, who's mentioned in the book, who runs a company called Tougher Minds. And he points out in that, and, and as we do in the book here as well, sleep, diet and exercise. They're things that we often think about, you know, you need sleep because you know how you feel if you don't have enough sleep diets and exercise generally though are how we look we're looking at our outside we're all very familiar with that uh, or obviously not wanting to be in front of the doctor mm. but people don't actually think about the brain and the brain needs those three things to function and everything that we do in our day is governed by the brain so people aren't actually looking after their brains but now they've got the time to do it um, and that's part of what we're doing with the team at the moment. In fact, we're doing this training because it is very easy. You see, so we've all got extra time or should do. So instead of getting up and commuting at seven o'clock, we should be getting up and we should be doing exercise if that's the right time for us or some meditation or just going out into nature as we all did. I mean, I don't know about you, but um, certainly in those forced lockdowns, and when we were told we couldn't go out very often, we all wanted to go out more. So we went out and we exercised more and we just walked. Yeah. And everything felt more peaceful and you were connecting with nature, etc., an awful lot more. But the danger is it is very diff diff different now that we can potentially, when we can actually have as much as we like of that, to fall back into sort of lazier habits, etc. So, you know, again, as humans, we need to be encouraged. But yeah, diet, sleep and exercise are massively important to everything that we do. Mm. And, and, and I found as well that when people people realized that certain things take less time than they thought they were going to take. 
people assume, oh, I, I need lots of time to prepare a healthy lunch and take it with me to the office. I need lots of time to, to do some exercise or I need lots of time to do blah, 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 blah. And, it, and I realized quite quickly, you know, I, I have a dog. We had we got the dog actually the summer before lockdown. So we were still relatively new dog owners. And of course, so every day there was an hour's dog walk. Since life has got back to, to normal and there's a full work diary, I have time in the morning to take the dog out for a mile walk. I have that every morning. I drop my son at the bus stop for his school bus at 20 past seven in the morning. And I know that I've got a period of time that if I get back to the house, I can go and walk around the village and do that quite easily. And yet I know for a fact that pre pandemic, I'd have thought, Oh, I haven't got time to do that in the morning. Um, right. I, I would just disregard it. It takes 15 minutes. You know, people probably spend that time looking at their phones in the morning over a cup of coffee. Yeah, exactly. And that that's with that as well. You know, we're, we're all going to be more productive because we're going to be happier. We're going to feel more refreshed and less under pressure as well. Uh, but it is, is a case of practicing that and keeping keeping that going, because the other side of certainly during pandemic and the other thing we need to really focus on when we're working from home is the tendency to overwork for all the mistrust we might have had in the past that people working from home wouldn't work as hard. There's an awful lot of evidence, and certainly I'm sure you've seen it as well, over the past couple of years, where because those boundaries aren't there, so you're not physically getting off a train and coming home and therefore turning everything off, the tendency is to overwork and, and to, you know, those extra hours you've got, maybe do some more work within them, answer emails at different times of day, etc. So this is all about us learning a different way of actually putting some barriers through our day, working when we're most productive, but relaxing when it suits us best as well and making sure we actually fit that in. Um, and I'm sure that the, the email thing is something that you touch on again in the book about, you know, maybe, you know, if you think about what email is and was and why it was created, you know, electronic mail, you know, we would get our post once a day from the postman. Mm -hmm. We would open it, we would read it, we would action it, and then we wouldn't get any posts again for the rest of until the 24 hours later. Yeah. Email was this, amazing new thing that came in to replace that or to offer you know a quicker way of but and we've got into this habit haven't we of checking it constantly of replying to it all the time um and whilst that may be necessary in certain parts of your job if you need a quick response for certain things we do need to perhaps rethink how we divide our day up and prioritize certain things yeah and again email is and has taken over all our lives uh, and our working lives because we expect and it's, it's, it's a virtuous circle where you expect people to reply. You reply to people because you feel it's polite very quickly. Um, and it used to be that I could work over a weekend, answer some emails on a Sunday, and now I would get no replies until a Monday. And that would be my inbox empty because I'm a bit of a, an inbox zero freak. I like to see it completely empty, no notifications, etc. on there. But now you do that on a Sunday and you tend to get into a conversation with somebody, it's email tables and if somebody will reply because they'll be doing the same thing. Mm. So again, I mean, I try to practice it. We try to get the team to practice it. We talk about it in the book a lot as well. Actually turning off email as if it was that good old fashioned post system because mm. you don't need to reply to everything immediately. And in fact, the people you're replying to probably would rather you didn't because they're trying to empty their inboxes as well. <laughs> so I actually try to do a thing now where from nine o'clock in the morning till 12 midday, I don't open my email at all and I have email diverted. I've got all sorts of things that tries to push it away to subfolders and things like that. Um, but it is, it's very much the ape part of our brain again yep. that we talk about in the book that loves email because it gets that quick fix and it's that quick fix of some sort of action, some sort of activity. 
But the trouble is we're sucked into it and we know that there is always going to be that one gremlin that comes through email that takes you down that rabbit hole that spoils your day. Mm. Um, so to switch off and only check it at certain times, I think that's something we could all we could all really do with teaching each other and respecting each other's time on that. Otherwise, that potentially is something that can suck you, you know, really in the wrong direction. Yeah. You, you mentioned something in the book, which I, I offered a wry smile at, because it's actually referenced to another book that I was given on a management training course about 15 years ago with a company that I, I used to work for called Eat That Frog by Brian Tracy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as soon as I saw it referenced in your book, I thought, I, I, I'm sure I've still got my copy of that kicking about <laughs> somewhere. Um, and for those who haven't come across Eat That Frog, it is exactly as you describe it in, in your book. The book that changed my life was Eat That Frog. Uh, and he cites the Pareto rule that states 80% of consequences come from 20% of the causes. And how we often get into this idea that we write down a list of jobs, things that we need to do. And what we will instinctively do is rattle through all the easy ones, first of all, because it gives us that instant sense of satisfaction. Tell us a little bit more about why you referenced that that particular sort of book and that principle within your own book. Yeah, very much. It, 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 that for a minute, very much. It did, it did change my, my life. Um, and certainly um, it's not something I, I can honestly say I practice every single day because, you know, we all... We all have our weaknesses and things yeah. that we like to tick off. But it, you, you put a to-do list together. There's nothing wrong with a to-do list, but we all know a to-do list is never empty. You're mm. always adding to it. And the frog is that hard and usually the most important thing that you should be doing, but you put it off and say you'll do it later uh, because it's much easier to put something off and procrastinate, as we all know. If you actually take the most productive time of your day, which for me and maybe for you and others would be first thing in the morning, yep. and you actually eat that frog. So the whole idea is you do something that you really don't want to do. It probably won't take you nearly as long as you thought it was going to do and won't be as painful either. And then everything for the rest of the day looks simple. And it really does. It really settles your mind and stops that constant fear that I know I've got something to do. I know I've got something to do that you push till later in the day. Uh, and it's a very simple principle, um, but it, it definitely does work. And of course, it gets to three o'clock and you still haven't dealt with it. And you think, oh, no, I'm not dealing with it at the back end of the day. I'll, I'll, I'll wait till tomorrow. And it gets put off again. It gets put off again. And I, I the reason that I, I, I grinned when I read it in your book is I remember it reading Eat That Frog and identifying with it really it was me it's exactly what i was doing the most difficult ones the most hardest thing to do you know they're generally speaking the absolute top of the priority list they need dealing with the reason that you're so scared of them is because they're the ones that you probably don't want to do because you know it's, it, 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 it's something that you really don't want to do but you know you have to do that's why we keep putting it off that's um, right and it's and just, it's just so the wrong way of, of dealing with it that's right, exactly. And, and a to-do list in general is the wrong thing to have anyway. I mean, it's very important. Um, again, we, we talk about um, actually getting thoughts out of your head and putting things on paper, because often if you put them on paper, they're not nearly as bad as your brain makes them out to be. Mm. And so there's no harm in producing a to-do list and putting lots there. But certainly what I've found over time is that you try to kid yourself then that you can have a diary, email and to-do list all working in parallel. But there is only one you and you've only got a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. So I don't use a to-do list anymore. I write down things, but then I put them into my calendar. And I actually put the exact amount of time I think it's going to take. Uh, and if you saw my calendar, I mean, it's crazy because everything goes in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, even to phone my mum, I'll put a note in my calendar and make sure it's there because it's something I should be doing during the day. Yeah, and Something as similar, simple as that, 
alongside a, a, a large work-related task, you can't do the two things at once. So you actually have to find time in your day to do it. And then if you don't do something, you can drag it to the next day or whatever it might be. But it really helps your, your mind focus and look at your day and think, I've only got this number of hours in my day. And I put, when I go for a run in there, I put, you know, when I'm going to do something fun and go out or whatever else, uh, I'm extreme in that way. But certainly a to-do list is, it, it's a dangerous thing unless you can actually, you know, physically find the time to put the things in there. Sure. Going back to the whole, um, I suppose, the principle behind the book and this idea of leaders within organisations having empathy for the people that they are uh, leading. Um, it's something, again, that, that, that is, is touched upon and something that was, was obvious to me is that in organisations, particularly bigger organisations, you're going to have a broad spectrum of people with very, very different lives who are all working. And the constraint of the nine to five, Monday to Friday, is that you're giving everybody with a different set of circumstances the same constraints within to, within which they've got to work. You may have somebody who's in their early 40s who have three children and a spouse or a partner, and they're juggling the you know family life and, and all the things that you've got to deal with as a parent with kids. And they may be working alongside a, a 22, 23-year-old graduate who's single, who has very, very sort of a lot of time on their hands, you know, but a disposable income to them. You know, we work with teams, all of whom have very, very different circumstances, yet conditioned them all to work within the same constraints. That's right, exactly. And people with different, you know, different, different home lives, you know, um, if when they used to be in the nine to five world, a um, there's an awful lot of people now who can work. Uh, people with young mums with young children at, at, at school, for instance, actually traveling to work each day was a problem. They had to find childcare, etc. And then they were fitting in a very busy day alongside a very busy life that they got back to. Mm -hmm. um, so it, and it's very easy to look at people and think, well, they all have the same. They can get back home, and put their feet up. A lot of people certainly won't. And what we've seen it in our team, in fact, the mums that are now able to work from home, they're able to, to juggle their life. So you're often seeing emails, etc., sent at 10 o'clock at night. But that's the time they get some peace and quiet and some focus. And it's the time they really want to work. And they want to work. They want to be productive. They want to be part of something. And it really shows that, you know, by actually thinking about how other people might be. Uh, you, you talk about young people in their 20s, for instance. We all know that teenagers, you know, we have a different body as we grow up. Uh, teenagers are renowned for not really liking the morning at all. Any time before lunchtime is probably pretty much frowned on. And yet they're probably going at their best at midnight and beyond midnight. <laughs> so, you know, a different working life for them as well. Maybe maybe we need to start considering that that sort of thing, how, how people's body clocks work. Absolutely. And and I can, you know, I, I giggle again because I've got two teenage boys and, you know, mm -hmm. one who's coming up to nearly 16 and one who's in his first year at university is coming up to, to 19 now. And um, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's the walking dead in the morning, you know, drag, dragging them out of bed. But, you know, that they'll, they'll come alive and be up till 3 a.m. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that there's no secret that that, that happens to most teenagers you know that there is a biological thing that ha is happening to them as they develop through that age where they they do find it difficult you know and and they and i and i've long thought that i'm very much of a, 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 in agreement with these people who think that the school day and how we structure education and things like that we do need to address it significantly not just subtly but significantly to identify what may be better working conditions for those young people 
That's right. And again, focusing on the brain and at what times of day that brain is most alert, you know, rather than just saying, well, you should all be adults and you should all be up at a certain time and working at these hours. Mm. But that, that does bring another challenge. Obviously, you mentioned, you know, one son there at university, another one probably will go through university at some point you know, in the future as well. When they come out, now we've adapted to this working from home routine. We're happy with it, going into office, et cetera. You know, most people over the age of, I suppose, 30, if we can use an age, are very happy with this mixed way of life. But when your son comes out of university, will he want to be sitting at home, probably in your home, working there all day, every day, without actually going somewhere and socializing with people? And will you want him to? Mm. And will they learn life skills if they're at home the whole day rather than being in an open plan office that that's going to be the challenge it is and 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 you point out different i suppose categorizations you know there's working from home there's working remotely there's this hybrid you know where you may be in one day a week and the other four you work at home um and i suppose that the the point i guess you're trying to make there is that, that there is there is now no one rule you know, it, it's very much up to companies and up to leaders to have that understanding and their empathy with the people they are leading and find the options that work best for the company and for the team. That's right. And it is. It's finding you're never going to find something that works well for everybody. Uh, but you've also got to be careful you don't start different camps, you know, um, building. So you have one of, you know, young people, another one of people who've got children, another one. You, you will then, you know, have people working different times a day and actually mm. cohesion between a team becomes very difficult. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of the big issues all the way through pandemic with people saying we've got to get back to offices because our culture will destroy. You know, there's no way we can build a culture if we're working remotely. Well, again, that's been proved wrong. Um, and by many companies, as I say, that have got hundreds of employees that, that barely meet face to face. Culture can be built around this sort of communication, you know, encouraging people to, to talk over WhatsApp, even Zoom, Teams, etc. regular meetups face to face. It doesn't have to be going into an office and sitting at a desk all day. Mm. But different people do need different interactions. Some might need very little at all. But others uh, and people coming out of university, etc., they're never going to learn the life skills that we learn from being in an office. And that, that includes traveling to an office, buying your own lunch, going out after work, still having to get up the next day if you have too many beers after work. <laughs> Whereas now, what happens on a Friday, people can go out on a Thursday night. It doesn't matter because they don't have to go to the office. So they can just about bluff it through Zoom and that's it. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. a very different way of, of growing up to that next level, if you like. That, that, that there are undoubtedly pros uh, and cons, you know, and I don't think anybody would disagree with the idea that seeing people face to face, you know, in the right context is has huge value, has huge value. But in terms of the uh, I'm going to use the word mundane and I hope it doesn't come across in any sort of disparaging way, but the mundane day to day task of doing your job, which is is the case for a lot of people, you know, the actual tasks that you've got to cross off that to-do list you know can often be done without the interaction of, of of a colleague you know you can usually do your job on your own fairly comfortably um which is where not being in an office really comes into an into its own because it does raise that question why do i need to be sat here why can't i be sat there to do that um and something on that point of there's there's pros and cons 
something you raise later on in the book. And I'm going to flick through my copy here. It's because I know it's on page 105. Aha. A tongue-in-cheek article that you wrote at the start of the lockdown about Zoom neck and Zoom fatigue. Um, and both soon became commonplace. Uh, and they can definitely be more exhausting than we imagined because, and that you raise a couple of points, the millisecond lag time means it takes more concentration and effort to hold a meeting over video, which I think is a very fair point. The second point you make, instead of making small talk and building rapport by shaking hands or having a coffee together with those people that you would be in a meeting with, we jump straight onto another online meeting without time to process or follow up anything that's actionable. Um, now, the point I wanted to put put to you is the flip side to that is I've seen a lot of internal meetings become far more productive over video because the meeting that used to take the sales meeting that used to take three hours around the conference room table because mm -hmm. everybody wanted to have their say so now takes half an hour because people are a little bit more courteous there's something about being on the video meeting where it encourages less cross talk across a conference table if you can understand that so right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, that's down to getting a balance right, I guess. Um, you know, it is much easier now to plan meetings within, say, a half an hour slot, mm -hmm. and then you tend not to waffle. Whereas, you know, in person, there is a good side of the waffling, if for uh, want of a better word. Yeah, uh, that is how we've always communicated, and you know, you you, you make friends, etc., and people trust you. But yes, that's why you're an awful lot more productive in internal meetings. Uh, within something like this because you don't want to spend on, uh, too much time on it. We spend so much time on video conferencing now that most of us want to be as efficient as we can on it and then get off. Mm. And, and I've started to use the phone quite a bit now. And it's amazing how we all forgot the phone so quickly. At the <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, yeah. We never used to have to see somebody on a phone call. It's, it, it's, it's strange how that suddenly became the place that I, I wouldn't speak to any of our clients now without doing a Zoom. And I did have a chat with one of them. He was in his car the other day driving somewhere. And it was just as effective and just as pleasurable talking. So it is. It's much more exhausting. I think what I was talking about in the book more um, was that we weren't planning time in between calls, especially external ones. So you can get an awful lot more meetings in a day. I mean, sometimes during you know the, the first wave, I was having about eight different meetings with external people a day. And each one was bang, bang, bang after each other, as well as internal meetings as well. You never could have achieved that uh, face to face, but you never needed to in the past. So why did we suddenly change to that? Uh, and that, that was the danger is getting into that with no breaks at all. Whereas if you go to a meeting, if I, if I go up to London for a meeting, generally I'd book a couple of meetings on the same day. But in between, you'd go and sit in Costa or something. You know, especially during the summer, I'd make sure that I got there to a meeting early, sat in Costa, had a cold drink, cooled down yeah. before I went into the meeting. And you had those natural breaks. And then you got on the train and you either did some work on the train that meant you didn't have to do any work when you got home. Or you might listen to a podcast or you might, you know, listen to an audio book or read the paper or something like that. Read the paper. Wow. Exactly. Yes. I read one of those. I picked up the Evening Standard the other day. I was coming back down, in fact. And um, it's amazing how thin it is now. Compared to what it used to be, and that was yeah. it. But yeah. I have the attention span of people, isn't it? As well, it's uh... it's, it's it's all those things, and um, you know, the, 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 it's it's all relevant. You know, the, the the idea of making time and 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 sort of squeezing things in and squeezing things out as well. Um, and I I actually found I got into a a habit going back to my dog walking routines. Um, 
of making phone calls while I was out walking the dog. You know, <laughs> we've all got headphones and, and AirPods in. And I thought, well, if there's three or four phone calls that I need to make, and I don't particularly need to make notes, I've just got to have those conversations with people. And I know that I'm going to retain the information that, you know, is going to be discussed in the content of that conversation. Then why not you know, kill two birds with one stone? I'm out yeah. walking, pop the headphones in. I've got them in anyway, because I'll be listening to music, pop them in. And I use that as phone call time now. Yeah, that's right. But then that's time that maybe should we be switching off and enjoying our walk with the dog and enjoying looking around us in nature and things like that. And yeah. that's the danger. We're trying to fill all of our hours, all of our days in with constant because we can. Um, and I think that's where we're all going to have to learn what we're doing now is perhaps I mean, one of the to take, go back to one of the points you made earlier about people having, you know, different routines during the day, etc. And how we used to, you know, sit in an office um, and you'd expect everyone nine to five is the time it took them to do their job. Well, some people work a lot faster than others. Some people can be an awful lot more productive, etc. And in that nine to five, sometimes, as you said, you know, if you were taking three hours to have a sales meeting because the chatter, etc. around it, actually, we can do a lot of things more productive. So yeah. are we right filling that time in or should we be reclaiming that time and going, you know, some of this nine to five is an old fashioned concept, whether that nine to five shifts and it's seven till three or whatever it might be. Do we actually have to work those set number of hours or here's a job, here's something we want to get done and let's get it done. There's only a certain number of hours in a day our brain is really productive and really efficient. Well, you've reminded me of something that I wanted to, to, to talk to you about today. And it, perhaps it would be the looking at the time, probably the final point of today's episode. But um, it, it it's something that I witnessed firsthand in an office years ago. And that is the lack of productivity of people in an office. And, and going back to this idea that, you know, leaders were scared of putting the trust in their staff to work from home because they wouldn't have that visual sort of control, so to speak, over you know witnessing them actually doing their work i saw an office that people could have done in two hours what they were regularly getting done in an entire day because of the amount of chit chat and to use an old-fashioned phrase tossing it off <clears throat> yeah. you know I, I, they come in the morning they'd spend half an hour making a cup of coffee chatting about yeah. last night's episode of EastEnders or whatever. By the time they actually got settled into their work, it was probably quarter to 10. And then, oh, it's 11 o'clock. Shall we have another cup of tea and a biscuit and another chit-chat? Oh, look, it's lunchtime. It's an hour. Right, we're all off out for lunch. Come on, off out for lunch. Then they come back in. Oh, look what I bought in the shops at lunchtime. And then before you know it, oh, it's a mid-afternoon tea break. And oh, it's five o'clock time to go home. And I and, and I laughed because I thought those people quite easy. If you actually took the office dynamic away, would struggle to fill an entire working day with the actual work that they got done in a full week. And there's that's that right. element of it as well. Exactly. Very much. And I think, you know, that's that's again where you have to get the balance right, because a lot of us and a lot of companies, in fact, have been using tools like Slack to try and actually replicate the water cooler moments as they're called and that chat yeah. in the kitchen and you know we all know there'd be a certain person in the kitchen who you'd avoid going to the kitchen not because you didn't like them but you knew you'd get stuck in a conversation for half an hour with them before you could go again but in some ways people are trying to replicate that through digital means to make sure you still have that conversation mm. um, but again it's not just a, a remote or a work from anywhere problem we we always had the problem in in our agency that you'd either have too much chatter or not enough and to get that balance in between, because it would often be we'd have clients coming in and I'd go, oh, it's very noisy upstairs always because, you know, these people are always inspired and doing stuff. And you'd go in it and be just that one day. 
when everyone was completely silent and they had their headphones on and you'd wish everyone was having that banter and chat, etc. So yeah, you're right. Um, it's getting the balance between the two things, but is an eight hour day necessary? And are we all productive for eight hours? No, the answer is definitely not. So there's definitely a new way coming. That's uh, we, we all just have to accept that, but realize it's not black and white. We've been uh, we've been talking on the podcast today to uh, Mr. John McMahon, CEO of MCM, but more importantly, as far as today's podcast goes, the author of The Power of Leading with Empathy, Overcoming the Challenges of Leading in a Non-9-to-5 World. And I'm going to finish, John, if I may, with um, uh, the, the foreword from the book um, by Dr. John Finn, uh, PhD, MSc. Uh, and he says, uh, as part of his foreword, it is my hope that any leader today who is faced with the challenges of a non-nine-to-five world, reads this book. In doing so, you'll be empowered to lead with clarity, confidence, and a renewed sense of how truly joyous leading can be. And that's a great way to kickstart your book. And I thought it'd be a great way as well to wrap up today's podcast. Great. Thank you very much, James. It was great to speak to you. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us, uh, it's very important that we should um, let people know how they can actually get hold of a copy of the book. And for those watching today's podcast on uh, the eventindustrynews.com website, there is the book that I'm holding up to camera now. Where can they get it, John? They can go to Amazon uh, or we are giving a limited number of free copies away. So if anyone wants to visit our website or um, email me directly, um, john at mcm.click and we'd be happy to send you a copy fantastic no th thank you very much and uh, hopefully we've given uh, enough of a taster there to our podcast audience today of what they can expect in the book and um, and and drive some of those people to get it and as i said i've i've not read it in its entirety but i've read enough of it ahead of today's podcast recording to know that it's something that I'm certainly going to be going back to um, and reading with great interest. So um, do keep in touch, John, let us know the progress of the book. And of course, um, it's a discussion that not just relevant to this book, but relevant to, to, to the wider industry as well. If anybody out there is working in an environment that has changed significantly over the last two years, and they want to maybe add their own take on what they've heard on today's podcast, do get in touch with us um, via Twitter at event news blog. Um, and you can find us on all the other social media platforms. Just search for Event Industry News. And we'd love to hear from you. How's your work-life balance changed in the last two years? For the better, for the worse, maybe? We'd love to hear from you. Our thanks again to John McMahon, author of The Power of Leading with Empathy, for joining the Event Industry News podcast. It brings us nicely to the end of today's episode. And we will see you on the next edition of the Event Industry News podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Mm -hmm.